All right. I follow up with another question from Frank. Um, fear of death and I, annihilation. Um, excuse me, Donna. Can I? You're working. I logged out, I logged out entirely. Logged in ah. again, and now it's working again. So. Uh, ah. Wunderbar. So, All right. <laughs> sorry, I, I'm only. Um, Interrupting because I thought I'd ask that question only if there's time at the end or it can be postponed because uh, That's actually okay. the very first question that was asked today um, made me think, I mean, I would have one comment and one question and the comment is on animals. So it was indeed very fascinating uh, to hear about that. I'd never heard that, that uh, animals and people uh, facing extreme suffering can be uh, replaced either well, for good or just temporarily by uh, the larger consciousness system to become uh, non-character players. Um, so for animals, I mean, it's more or less obvious. I'm sure we're not to conclude from that we, that we just need to make sure that the animals are treated really horribly uh, so that they're going to be taken out of the system <laughs> and uh, then we get suffering uh, free meat for the world. So this is probably not even worth commenting on. But... Um, um, yeah, well, that's a, that's kind of similar to what you asked before. You know, it's the people who say, "Oh, it's just a virtual reality; doesn't make any difference." You know, says, "Well, you know, the system's gonna gonna take out the is, is going to uh, take that that very horrible stuff itself, and the individual IOC is going to be spared it." So, you know, it doesn't matter what we do to these things. Yes, some people will think that way, but hopefully, not very many, and not for very long. Again, the the detriment is they're going to de-evolve. And the more they de-evolve, then the, the harder their life is going to get and the more miserable they're going to be and the more unhappiness they'll find. And it's just not a pretty picture if you go that route. But there will be some people who will, who will say that, say, well, okay, right now, um, you know, we, they try. I think some of them try. I, I uh, saw a video. Let's say when they slaughter animals, um, they try to make it fast. And quick, you know, it's not like they torture them first, you know, before they kill them. They like to kill them in a, in a very, uh, very quick way that, that, um, is the minimum amount of, of, uh, stress. But that minimum amount of stress is still a huge amount of stress. You know, it's not like you can say, oh, well, yeah, they make, they make death fun. You know, it's, no, it's not going to be like that. You're not going to make death fun. You know, there's still a lot of stress. You know, those, those animals, as they're read up, you know, if they're, as they're led up that uh, processing line, you know, they know, they communicate, they're conscious, they have tele telepathy just like we do. They know what's going on. They've got the sense of of what's happening, and uh, that is, it's terrifying and it's unsettling and it's all those things. So you're not going to to have uh, you know situations where everybody's you know going to have such a happy death that they can't wait to die. You know, it isn't going to work like that. It's always going to be a high stress thing for animals and for people both. You know, uh, Kevorkian, who uh, worked very hard to get uh, suicide made legal under some circumstances where the patients are, you know, are, are dying anyway. And instead of suffering and, and having the, the medical establishment suck up all of their resources, they just as soon end it. And go on, and, and anyway, that that happened in the U.S. I don't know. I guess it's happened in Europe as well, where you have uh, suicide being made uh, legal various mm -hmm. places, and that's like that. Well, they try to make those very painless deaths, but I'm sure it's not a a zero stress moment, you know, for the person. Even if they decide intellectually this is what they want to do, it's got to be 
a high-stress moment. And for those very few that it's not, well, they're, they're exceptions. But I don't think there'll be a lot of, well, then we can do anything because it doesn't matter idea, just like we discussed about before. Yeah. That uh, isn't going to work. And, and if they keep doing that and they keep sinking lower and lower, they will be put into incarnations where it's simpler and simpler for them to succeed. I mentioned sort of half joking before, you know, they'd be a golden retriever because golden retrievers like everybody, you know, that's just the kind of dog they are. You know, they're just a very sociable, uh, like everybody kind of animal, but, um, they will get simpler and simpler, uh, lifetimes to live to where they have fewer and fewer decisions to make until they turn around and start making positive decisions. So they kind of take themselves out of the mix in a way. You know, they uh, they they uh, don't necessarily just stay around and poison all of us as they as they de-evolve. They themselves get taken out of the mix because the system is trying to encourage them to turn around and, and evolve the other way. So they start giving them lifetimes that are things that they have a chance of succeeding in rather than flunking. So the other uh, question I really had, again, regarding this uh, replacement uh, by a non-character player uh, was regarding the case uh, where humans, I understood, if they face such horrible torture and suffering, um, but not to the point that they will die, uh, that they would temporarily be replaced and then they would come back. But there I wonder, but wouldn't that create some kind of um, situations where they would not be, for example, as traumatized afterwards as they should be, and that would somehow uh, create um, a strange situation that wouldn't quite fit, or they wouldn't have any memory of, of what happened. Um, so, uh, and I mean, you never hear of such cases, but on the other hand, you have centers uh, dealing with um, victims of torture, for example, who are severely traumatized, so It doesn't seem to be the case very often that people are taking out, taken out temporarily to protect them. Well, I suspect it depends on the individual. If it seems like it's going to do some permanent damage, then I suspect the system would not let them be pushed that far to where there's permanent damage. If it doesn't, then the system may let them go that far just because they'll talk about it later, write books about it, be interviewed about it, and they'll help all the rest of us see some of the horrors of, you know, of that. And that's an advantage to all of us. So it just depends on what the situation is, you know, how much damage is it going to do? Um, if it's an adult, they probably would, would make them, pass out, if you will, would be what it would look like. They'd make them pass out during a lot of the worst of it. But when they wake up, they'd still be sore and hurting and miserable, no doubt. And I'm not saying that the system is going to turn it into something pleasant for them, but it may take the edge off to the point that the damage that they get is not permanent, or I shouldn't say permanent, but not something that's going to take many, many lifetimes to get over. It's something that they will be able to deal with and go on. You know, some people are a lot stronger at dealing with things than others. Viktor Frankl comes to mind. You know, Viktor Frankl is a guy who experienced 
um, concentration camps and a lot of abuse and came out the other end improved. You know, he came out the other end with a new therapy that he wanted to put on the world. He didn't come out bitter. He didn't come out traumatized. He didn't come out upset. Yet he lost everything that was important to him and all the people he loved were killed. But he came out positive. Well, that's a strong person that can do that. He didn't, uh, he didn't come out, uh, uh, angry. So most people aren't that strong. They don't have that depth of character that Viktor Frankl do, but some of them do. And the ones that are do, that do, it's good for them to tell their story. It helps all the rest of us see a bigger, better picture of what went on on the inside. And it helps us all grow up if they can tell their story. So it's not like everybody who's going to get something awful, you know, gets saved that, that trauma. But those, those who would suffer unduly from it. And by that, I mean, in their previous next carnations and next incarnations, it's really going to damage them in some fundamental way. Those are the ones that get saved from that sort of thing, you know, and I should even, you know, when possible, I don't even know that the system is always 100%. You know, it's just a system. It's not necessarily perfect. It doesn't do everything perfectly right all the time, but it would tend to do that. It's just in itself best interest to do that. But not necessarily always. Those that can come back and talk about her or are so inclined and can deal with it, well, it's good maybe to let them deal with it. Maybe not miss any of it and then they can share it with us. We can, we can kind of experience it vicariously and uh, it, it helps. So that's what's going on. The system doesn't just have a, it's not just a machine that blankly you know, does one thing. It does these things as it sees it's best for overall growth. Thank so, you. Yeah. And I bet if you, if you looked at people who were tortured and those things happened to them, you'd probably find that some of them remember every detail and that others don't, that others just don't remember it. They, uh, they have mechanisms that they say they block it out. They have, you know, selective amnesia that they don't remember. Well, that's just metaphors for I really wasn't there and participating. So that may not be that they, their memory just had a chunk in it. It's just that that's the part of the memory that that's the part that they didn't actually experience is where their memory drops out. So you'll find some of that in that, in that group as well. And it's a person to, or it's a case by case basis i think as as a lot of things in in the conscious system a case-by-case basis thank you this donna this other question that i actually also discovered was still on the list uh, left from last time it's not i mean i can ask it if there's time at the end if not it's not a problem to postpone it again all right frank we'll we'll go to mario who has a question and then we'll come back to yours hello mario I don't know if the rest of you or the listeners out there all know Mario or not, but Mario is the man who he and a, and a small team of his translated my big toe into Brazilian Portuguese. And uh, he's uh, producing an event this summer. We're going to be in, uh, in Brazil talking with Mario and other people. So if you can uh, join us in Brazil, that would be, that would be great. It's uh, going to be quite a, quite an adventure there. Thank you, Tom, for, for giving an introduction there. Uh, I have put a question about communication in the non-physical 
matter reality. I mean, uh, communication is usually a problem even here. Huh? And uh, I talked that there is need of background, knowing the uh, to understand each other for for being able to communicate, to even say and understand the words. Okay, and then uh, uh, when you go to to non-physical matter reality and try to communicate there, I, I I don't clearly. It's not clear to me how much to have a background there too is important or not for that kind of communication. The okay. no, no physical matter reality, I mean. Huh? Yeah. Well, the thing there is when you are communicating um, kind of being to being in the non-physical, it is, for the most part, not necessarily always like this, but for the most part, it's in terms of metaphor. It's metaphorical. That way, language doesn't isn't, a, isn't an issue. You know, you can kind of work across languages with metaphors. Um, if you are communicating with somebody who shares your metaphors, then your communication will be pretty good, pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. If you're communicating with somebody who does not share your metaphors, has, you know, let's say, um, you know, the metaphors that you might share, you're in Brazil, you know, the, meta, the, the metaphors that you might share with uh, somebody who was picked up out of the depths of the Brazilian uh, Amazon jungle and who had never been in civilization, they would have very different metaphors for things than you would. And trying to communicate with such a person would be very difficult, even if language wasn't the issue. The way you'd, the way you'd describe things, the, way, you know, the things that were important, the things that weren't important, the things you'd notice and not notice, all the metaphors would be different. So trying to really... Uh, communicate well with somebody who has very different metaphors from you coming from a very different culture than you is difficult. And when we're communicating in the non-physical, it's mostly metaphorical. So let's say you're communicating with some entity in the non-physical and that entity has never been in a physical like virtual reality trainer. It's only been in the non-physical. Well, that communication is going to be problematical because you're not going to have the same sort of metaphors. You will get some of the the main ideas, perhaps, but the details will probably get lost. Metaphors don't do details very well anyway. They do just concepts and big ideas and feelings. A lot of the communication telepathically is feeling space. Even though you get an intellectual message, you get you get the paragraph, but you get it in more in a feeling space than you get it in an intellectual space. So, yes, it's very difficult to communicate anyway. Even, you know, even though somebody that's grown up next door to you and you share a lot of the same experiences and share the same environment and went to similar schools, that's easier, but it's still difficult because you've had different lives. And with those different lives, you see the world differently. You live in different realities. And when you talk to somebody from a different reality, it's a little hard to get meaning across when all you can do is send packets of data over the wall, you know, and the other person gets them and has to interpret them in terms of their own metaphors and their own experience. And if that meta if those experiences aren't similar, then it's easy to find you know, that you're not communicating very well.
And one of the one of the ways to work with that is when you're in the non-physical, try to just deal with things in big ideas, clear things. Don't uh, work in the detail so much. Now, if you want to work in detail, because that's the problem you're trying to solve is details, you keep working on that. The system may custom design a situation where you can get that detail. You may even get it in the language of your choice. You may hear it spoken to you word for word. But if you're just out flying around and interacting with people, you'll find that you need to keep it basic. Not quite to the level of grunt and gesture, maybe a step above that, but still very basic. And always keep in mind that you may be wrong. You may be interpreted incorrectly. That you got an interpretation and you think this is what it is, but always have some skepticism that what you got is, is, is accurate or not. It may not be. You may just think it's accurate. So always be skeptical of whatever you get. All right. Thank you. Um, Frank, if you'd like to ask your question, we do have time for it. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah. So last time I asked about the fear of death and I noticed there was a, a little aspect um, that I wanted to cover left over still and it I'm not even sure if it's a real MBT question or any, just general psychological question, but according to MBT, would you, would you say that fear and ego um, could work in a way that a person creates a self-image uh, uh, to be, I don't know, the successful businessman and that image of the person becomes so strong that anything that challenges that image, any person challenging that or events like the, the company goes bankrupt and um so the the person's self image is challenged to the point that uh, the person needs then also some sort of fear of death kicks in the the person thinks they need to defend it at all cost and and um i don't know if that makes sense but uh, just from an ego fear uh, perspective if if you could comment on that sure it's like the fear of death i don't know that it is the fear of death it's a fear of change the fear of of not being in your element, the fear of not being in control, you know, all of those things. And you can get so identified with something that you just can't let go of it, even when it's in your best interest to let go of it. And I think a real good example is some of the uh, uh, blind people, or at least one person I've heard of, a blind person that was trained to see, even though they were born blind, say they didn't have a retina or an optic nerve or something they were just born blind but they could learn to see by remote viewing seeing without eyes the thing that that uh, evelyn there in germany teaches and she has had a blind person who was able to see she could teach to to see and indeed he was able to see but it affected him very negatively now that he could see completely changed his life so much and you'd think He'd jump up and down and go, yay, I can see, I can see. And maybe he acted like that for a few seconds or for a few minutes. But eventually, just as you say, he was so invested in his life as a blind person that it just so upset his whole life. Well, maybe it was his job. Maybe he had a job that was a special job just for a blind person. Now, does it mean he'll have to leave? He don't have a job anymore? You see, everything different in his life and if he doesn't have that job what else has he done you know what other skills does he have that could he do and 
Anyway, he came to the point that he could see and then came to the point that he didn't want to see. His life as a blind person, he had already dealt with that, had that encapsulated and, you know, in a cubby hole under his control that he could live that way. And seeing became a problem. So even, you know, that's an extreme case, right? You'd, you'd think that certainly anybody who was blind would want to see. Well, not necessarily. So it's like the executive, you say, you know, he's an executive and, uh, you know, the, the stock market crashes. So he jumps off the roof of the building because he, he can't see himself in any other role or existing in any other way. So, yeah, people get very tied to their beliefs, to their, their structure and anything outside that structure is frightening. It's fearful. It's change. It's new. And people in general dislike change. They dislike doing things that they're unsure about. They dislike not having control. And when they're in that, particularly if they've been in a position that they have totally under control, now suddenly they're thrown into one where that control is gone, they uh, panic. So, yes, that's a, it's just fear, though. I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's, it's fear, which makes it similar to a fear of death, but it's not really a fear of death. It's a fear of change, a fear of loss of control, a fear of not knowing who you are and what you're going to do next. And if I'm not a business executive or I'm not blind, then I don't know how to exist because that's the only thing I know of. And that is the primary difficulty of getting yourself in a rut, you know, of being, of having all these beliefs and having this thing and you just get in this rut and your life is just constantly treading in the same rut all the time. And you don't think new thoughts. You don't get new experiences. You don't meet new people. You just keep treading in the same old rut then you can end up that way. Your your life has become so narrow that the only choices you have tomorrow are the same choices that you had yesterday. Yeah, different people, different players, different things, but they're all basically the same choices. You just keep making them over and over, and you're good at them. You're really good at them, and that's what you do, but you've become, your your decision space has become very, very small. So almost like a depressed person's decision space is very small. And in that smallness, you, uh, you lose a part of your, of your ability to, to grow or to be or to change. So yeah, it's just a fear. Thank you. Well, Tom, we'll move to one of the MBT forum questions, one of the new ones. Um, it's concerning the effects of music and music in PMR. I just want to comment because it's a little timely for me. There was a local theater company called the Encore Opera Theater that opened here in our town. And we went to the premiere last night. And although we were, we're both familiar with a lot of the pieces, it was just an hour and a half concert of a little group of people who got together for just for the love of music. We were familiar for some of the pieces, but there was something special about this group. There, this is a very, of course, specialized art. It's a very difficult art. It requires, <clears throat> it requires acting and a lot of, uh, very highly skilled vocal techniques. But there was more to it. There was a passion here. There was, um, it was a combination of bonding, this love of their art, uh, the people who were involved, because we were very moved by it. Um, 
there was such a powerful emotional impact to these to these performances. I will ask the question that was uh, submitted: Are the effects of music um, can they have uh, that they have on people somehow be woven into the rule set, or is it something more meaningful? Um, they can't have been conditioned as they seem to work on everything, babies, animals, and plants. What is music, and what is its deeper nature? What experiences do you have with music in NPMR? That's uh, non-physical matter reality. Okay. Uh, I'll do the last first and work back to the beginning. Um, I have run into music other places, almost everywhere. Um, I have been in one reality frame where the, the whole social fabric was based around music. Music was really the the form of communications, if you will. Everything was uh, kind of music-based. Music was a very fundamental part of this particular reality frame. So some places it's very dominant. Other places, like here in our virtual reality, it's something we do kind of recreationally. You know, we listen to music for fun and for pleasure and uh, um, because it interests us, because we like it. But music is a, it connects to us at the being level. Music is not an intellectual thing. And you can appreciate music intellectually, but that's like appreciating the skill of the artist, you know. They hit every note perfectly and their timing is perfect and, you know, they didn't miss this or that. And those hard, you know, the singer hits the hard high notes and does all these things perfectly. And that's kind of their, their skill set. And you can appreciate that, but that's not really appreciating music. That's appreciating the skills in music. And sometimes you can hear a piano piece or something where they're playing so fast and you wonder how can anybody's fingers move that fast? And you kind of say, wow, that's really impressive that they could do that. But that's not what we're talking about here. Music is appreciated at the being level. It's a, it's an intuitive, emotional connection. And that music speaks to you in that, in that emotional connection. So that's the, that's connection. It connects with our, with our emotions. Um, also, when you go to a concert like that or, or a program of some sort where you're at the live performance, there's a difference often in a live performance. And if you have artists, particularly artists who are very much into their art and they are really involved in what they're doing, they're not just going through the motions. You know, they're not trained to all kick at the same time or something. You know, they're, they're just really into what they're doing. Then you will pick that up as well. So you're not only seeing what they do, hearing what they do, but you're also getting their, their telepathic communications to you. You're feeling them. You have an empathetic connection with them and you can pick up on their state which is usually in a in a state that is um, very sublime for the artist. When an artist is in the middle of doing his art, that's usually a very sublime state that they are in. And yes, passionate, you would say. And you pick up on that to where the audience feels that and starts to repeat it. So the audience starts to feel that same way, which then feeds the performers, which then feeds the audience. 
and you can get a, a thing going between the audience and the performers that just brings that whole thing into a crescendo that is, that is produces an experience that you won't have sitting in your living room watching it on TV will be a different experience altogether. So it's not just what you hear and see, but it's also what you feel and what you get through that telepathic bond that you're going to have with all those performers because you're tuned in on them and their art. Therefore, you pick that up to the exclusion of everything else. And when you sink to that, they sink to your sinking to that, and it makes something beautiful. So that is the, you know, that's why a live concert or a live performance of whatever has another whole dimension to it that a, that uh, one that you, that you see recorded doesn't have. Now in the recorded, you can get into that. If you know how you can tap into that experience in the past, you go to the past database to when that performance was live. You can tap into that same kind of feeling and get into that and share that. But most people don't know how, so it's not, they don't do that very often. They just sit in their living room and listen to it recorded on their TV set or, or on a, on a CD disc. And they uh, don't get into that, but you can get into that if you kind of put yourself in that space, which means you kind of go into a meditation space where you let all the physical world go and you, you, you kind of merge with the performers and with the audience and get into that space. Then you can share that again with them. That's not lost. That's still there. It's still part of the historical database. And you can have the, about the same interaction that you'd have if you were there. But most people don't do that. They just listen to it in their living room while they chat and eat popcorn. And it's not the same experience as, as being there because then everybody's swept up with it and you're getting everybody else's thing. So anyway, yes, music is a fundamental thing because it's emotional. It triggers our emotions. The sound is... I mean, sound can be cheerful, it can be exhilarating, it can be sad, it can be joyous. You know, music produces emotion. Now, why does music produce emotion? I don't know. It seems to be just an attribute of consciousness. It uh, does, though. Music is a... It, uh, it produces... It, like I say, in this one place I went where music was the fundamental way of communicating... It produced more than just emotion, you know, intellectual ideas and, and lots of things went over the music. But we wouldn't have necessarily thought that it was music. It was sound, but it's not the same kind of music that we call music. It was just musical in, a, in its own in its own way. All right. Thank you, Tom. Um, that particular performance has stuck with me. And you, when you tap into it again, those powerful emotions are still there. Uh, the next question is also from the MBT forum. Tom, if you are able to, this this is on uh, the outcome of experiments in Tom's first uh, method and experience. Tom, if you're able to switch data streams in order to manage your own future probability, have you seen how your upcoming experiments will hold up? Also, on a different note, please tell me the original method when you were a complete novice and skeptic that Bob Monroe taught you when you were helping him with those original experiments in the 70s. 
Please specify exactly what the methods used to get your first altered consciousness exper- experience. Well, I know there's there's more to the story than that, but please um, give us your insight on that. Okay. Well, when I was uh, first started going back or going to Monroe's, it wasn't a very um, complex process that he sent us through, and it didn't necessarily. It wasn't the process that created the success. The success was created because Dennis and I both were really interested in learning. We were really interested in in growing. And also, I had already done that before, you know, 20 years earlier as a young child. I had done a lot of those things before and been around that block, I guess, a few times in other incarnations as well. So I was a very quick study. Bob came in and put on a tape. And then in those days, it really was a tape. It was a cassette tape. And it was a relaxation tape that basically uh, had you relax parts of your body, started with your toes, worked up to the top of your head, and you just successively relaxed various parts of your body. It's a very standard relaxation technique that uh, a lot of people have used for a long time. And he had this sound. Of course, there were no binaural beats yet because Dennis and I hadn't come across them yet. So we hadn't gotten to the binaural beat at this point. It was just music that he had made. He called it meta music, and he had a, a electrical engineer build a synthesizer for just making that sound. And it sounded sort of like surf, but it had a four hertz beat in it. It was, um, I don't know, the, some of the sounds at Monroe Laboratory still have a similar sound in them. You can go buy one of those tapes from from uh, TMI and uh, see what it sounds like. But it was just a sound. For one, it masked outside noises. And two, it had that four hertz um, rhythm in it. And that was it. And he would uh, lead us up to this relaxation exercise. And he'd put that sound on. And we were just to go explore and tell him what we saw. And we would go explore and, you know, we'd see some, some this and that and we'd tell him and he'd ask us questions or ask us to go find something else or ask a particular question or whatever it was. So he was involved in the process of, of, uh, kind of helping us figure out what to do next. And that was valuable because when you're in that state, you are entirely at the being level. And at the being level, it's kind of hard to intellectualize what you ought to be doing next or what a good question would be. Those kinds of things are best done in the intellectual level. So he was able to do that for us so we could just stay at the being level, stay in that state, and kind of respond without us having to think what it was we should do next or what question we should ask or what we should try to see. He could just tell us some things, and we just would respond to that. Now, he never... He was very careful never to lead, to lead us into any particular thing. He'd never say, now look and see the, you know, the glowing orange ball. He would never say that. He never led us to, um, any particular result because he just wanted to put us in a space where we would open and the results had to be our own. So as they say, he led from the rear rather than from the front. It wasn't come on, follow me. 
It was just go do this and figure it out on your own and tell me what you get. And maybe I can help you by leading you someplace more effect, you know, more uh, useful. So he would tell us, well, see if you can't find out about such and such or ask him about this. He would do that, but he wouldn't ever uh, give any idea of what the answer might be or that there even was a right answer. It was just whatever we got. That was that was the way it worked. So that's how I learned. But I was ready for it. So it didn't take very long for me to open up and get in that bean level state and hold it and stay in there for hours. It wasn't a, uh, a hard thing to do. And at that point, there was only a focus 10. That was it. None of the rest of them existed. They came later. So we just did a very simple thing. No binaural beats, nothing but a little swishy. The sound with the four hertz was like, it was like a surfy sound and it had kind of a more rolling surfy sound in the background, but then it had this, this modulated four hertz stuff that would kind of rise and lower and rise and lower. It was just his own concoction of, of, uh, sound. Dennis and I learned later that just the plain binaural beat was even stronger and more effective than that initial sound. And then Bob agreed with that, so he started laying binaural beats underneath of this sound. It was what he then called hemisync. It was his old sound with a binaural beat under it, and it worked a lot better with the binaural beat under it than it did just by itself. So that uh, that's what I learned. That's what I learned on. Now, what was the very first part of that question? seemed like the question kind of morphed into two different questions. It was a first <laughs> part and a second part. Actually, it was about uh, looking at the future and uh, how you... Oh, yeah. Oh, that's it. The future about the the experiments, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Oliver. I I don't do that. I don't look in the future. Um, I know it. you will find it odd, but I just don't have any interest in looking in the future. The future will get here when it gets here, and I don't do that sort of thing. And the reason I don't do it is that if if you do that... What you will eventually do is build a bubble around yourself and, and eliminate most of the things that would actually be growing points for you. In other words, you, if, if you are constantly looking at what's probable, modifying those probabilities to come out the way you want, um, getting into people's minds and planning suggestions in there that would have them thinking the way you want, and otherwise just managing your, your environment, you know, uh, trying to make it rain when uh, you'd like it to rain and make the sun shine when you'd like the sun to shine and in general trying to manipulate your reality to be the way you want it you end up living in a bubble of your own creation and that bubble is a very sterile reality it doesn't have the challenges it doesn't have the the opportunities for growth it's just sterile it doesn't uh, it doesn't work well besides there's no need to know what's coming in the future. There's need to know those things. If I need to know that, the system will put it in my data stream. If I don't need to know it, you know, then I don't need to know it. So if there's something that I, it's really critical for me to know, I'll get that information. If it's not critical, then I don't need it. So it's that sort of a attitude that I have, and I just don't look. I don't go there. I try to live my life fully here, immersed and connected and engaged in this reality and in the people here. When I see people, I don't look at their auras to see, you know, whether they're telling me the truth or not or whether they're, you know, 
you know, highly evolved or not highly evolved. And then I don't do any of that stuff. I have done it. You know, when you're growing in the beginning and you're just learning these things, then you do it and you play with it and you, you know, you use it. But the more it becomes just, you know, the more, the easier it gets and the better you get at it, the less you really are interested in it. You realize that your optimum life is the one that happens to you. That's the one where you're going to learn the most. And as much as you try to manipulate it, you end up getting in your way and shooting yourself in the foot because you're never as smart as you think you are. So trying to manipulate things, given that you have some skills to manipulate things, it's always a worse result than if you just let it happen. The effort to manipulate mostly doesn't help. So I just don't have any interest in looking. I'll find out when I get there, and it will be fun. I'd rather have that than not have the fun of finding out when I get there. That's going to be exciting. So I've got some excitement in my life. We've got some experiments coming, and how they're going to work out, I don't know. We'll see. It could work out any number of ways, and it's going to be very exciting and fun to find that out. And I wouldn't want to spoil that by, you know, what is it? Uh, you know, somebody tells you the end of the book before you start reading it. You know, that kind of takes all the, takes all the oomph out of it. You know, it's just the spoiler, right? Well, you don't want to be the spoiler for your own life. It's not, it's not an advantage. People think that would be a big advantage. Oh, you can tell when somebody's lying because you can see their aura, you know, and you can see what, what that, what those lies are and you can tell about their emotional state and you can see whether they're upset and what's going on with them and how bright they are, how dull they are or how evolved they are. And you, you know, all this about people so you can, you know, judge them and know just what to say to them. And I don't use any of that. I don't look at people that way. They're just somebody else and I interact with them. And however I interact, that's my interaction. That way I am me. I'm authentic. How can you be authentic when you live in a created reality that's your bubble? You're not really authentic. You're constantly manipulating everything. When you're a constant manipulator, you will find out that you will more often than not manipulate yourself into a hole. You know, manipulate yourself into a dead end. You manipulate yourself into, you know, into pain that if you just done it the way it comes to you and do your best each time, that optimizes the result. Thinking that you can control things is a suboptimal result. You're not nearly as smart as you think you are. So, uh, you know, you learn that lesson the hard way. Usually I, I learned it as well. So I just don't look to see how things come out. There's no sense spoiling perfectly good uh, reality and finding out when it actually happens. Uh, that's, I don't, uh, generally, I don't heal myself if I get ill or if I get sick. My wife will tell you I don't even heal her when she gets ill or gets sick, you know, much to her chagrin sometimes. But uh, sometimes I do. It depends. You know, sometimes the situation seems to call for a little intervention, but mostly it doesn't. You just deal with things as they happen. That's where that's where your life is. That's where your choices are. That's what matters. That's what makes a difference. That's what we're here for. So to get in the way of that and create some sort of bubble out of your manipulation just gets in your way it's not a fast track to anywhere good so you just learn to not bother with it i just don't have an interest in it, so don't even think about it you know when they ask that question about looking at the results of your experiments the kind of said oh yeah 
You know, I didn't even think about that. I could have done that, but I'm not interested in it. But I never even thought about it. The idea didn't come to me. I don't process my reality that way. It's not. I guess I've tried it and found that it doesn't work well. So that's uh, that may be one way to put it. But I've, uh, and as much as you try to arrange things or to fix people or to do, you know, anything like that where you think you're helping, it turns out you're not. You're just interfering. People are on their own path doing their things just the way they have to be doing them. And trying to butt into that or even butt into your own is just not smart, not helpful, doesn't help them, doesn't help yourself. There are exceptions. Yes, I do still heal people and uh, I do things like that. But it's just kind of one-offs, and I don't do much on myself except in very unusual circumstances. I just let it be, however it is. Live with it, right? Stuff happens. We get to deal with it. That's life. Anything other than that is something else. It's not as effective. Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, everyone. They were great questions. Thank you all for being here. Yes, I agree. Thank you. I appreciate all your questions. Appreciate you all coming in here and and uh, listening and voicing and putting things into the forum and sending us questions. All of that's what makes this, these things interesting. Goodness, if I just sat here and talked for two hours, that would be awful. You guys ask really good questions, and that makes this interesting for me and for everyone else. So thank you. Thank all you uh People out there that listen to this because we get lots, I get a lot of feedback from these, uh, fireside chats and almost all of it is very positive. This has been a, this is a very, uh, useful forum that we have. And thanks to Oliver, we have it. Oliver's idea, Oliver set it up, Oliver pays for it, Oliver runs it and takes care of all the, of all the details. So if it wasn't for Oliver, um, none of this would happen. But Oliver also has a, a, a help fund me button on his uh, on his website. So if uh, you appreciate Oliver putting these things on all the time, then uh, you should go over to uh, matrixvision.de and uh, give him a little uh, boost there so he doesn't have to shoulder all the financial stuff himself. And let's not forget Justin, who edits all the flubs oh, that I make. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And yeah, and we have to give it to Justin. He does yeah. all the editing. And if you've ever done audio editing, you know that two hours of audio <laughs> is just an immense thing to edit. That is a huge pile of editing. Two hours of live video, and you have to take out all the coughs and the and does and a lot of the stuff that, uh, you know, just doesn't help make it professional. And Justin does a really good job with that. And uh, he's done every single one of them, I think. Uh, maybe one or two he slipped by, but he's done almost all of these fireside chats, and he does it all for free. It's just his his volunteer work. He has Thanks. a wonderful art art website too, Justin Snodgrass. So he's not only a talented editor but a talented artist as well. Thanks, Justin. Bye, okay, everyone. Well, I'll see you all later, guys. Bye now. So long.